But it's that whole idea of we have the better interpretation. We have the better perspective here. This makes more sense than what God's saying. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we continue our walk through chapter one of Galatians. Last week we examined the first 10 verses, and this week we'll conclude the chapter. Since we're diving into the middle of the chapter, though, let's quickly remember together the context and what preceded our passage for today. In the introduction to this amazing letter, we see right away that Paul's authority to instruct the church comes from God himself. This should make us sit up and listen. Next, from that place of authority, Paul opened this letter with a beautiful proclamation of the sovereign, saving work of God, according to His grace and divine will alone, which brought about our peace and reconciliation with Him and rescued the church, past tense, from this present evil age. If we believe that gospel, then we know we add nothing to our salvation. It's all of God from start to finish. Nothing the false teachers in Galatia were seeing should have ever been entertained because they were denying the divinely given facts of the true gospel of God. So after that amazing proclamation of the gospel, Paul launched into a fervent correction of these churches. He revealed his agonizing amazement that they were deserting God himself. This is strong language. His language revealed that their willingness to entertain teachings that contradicted God's gospel was treasonous. Think about that. Entertaining and following a variation on God's gospel is akin to abandoning God himself. Wow. That's serious. And it's why we warn of a different Jesus when we talk about a different gospel. Mm-hmm. It's why we do what we do at Life Assurance Ministries. Not only did Paul rebuke their abandonment of God, but he called a curse upon anyone in heaven or on earth who teaches contrary to God. This week, we'll see Paul expose the methods of the false teachers as he begins to correct their lies about him. And it becomes clear that a part of their strategy was to undermine the authority of Paul, undermine the messenger, and discredit the message. And I would suggest to you that recognizing the methods of false teachers is an important aspect of protecting the gospel. As you begin to see a pattern emerge among them, you're better equipped to decisively disrupt the workings of future threats to the gospel. Undermining Paul was the only way these false teachers could bring in their syncretistic form of Christianity that blended the old covenant with the new and destabilized the confidence of the believers in the work of Christ alone. Mm -hmm. They had created a distortion that stood in direct opposition to the gospel that Paul so carefully guarded. So they sought to bind the consciences of the Galatians to this false system of religion by instilling doubt in their trust of Paul and his message. Does any of this sound familiar? Well... The Galatian false teachers doubted Paul's authority. The false teachers of Adventism, at best, cast doubt on Paul's clarity. Mm-hmm. Both seek to undermine the clear, authoritative teachings of Paul. They just do so from different angles. Now, as an Adventist, I was bored by the history in the Bible, but I urge you to pay attention as Paul's historical letter unfolds and reveals to us the truth of the gospel, the answer to false teachings, and the very real danger of entertaining a message that adds to or subtracts from God's gospel, or that causes you to doubt his inerrant and inspired scriptures written by men he appointed himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
When we begin to see and believe what Paul tells us, we see a picture take shape that has deep roots in all of God's word, but that bears no resemblance to the gospel or worldview of Seventh-day Adventism. So open your Bibles and join us. But before we dive in, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can visit proclamationmagazine.com to view online articles and to sign up for emails that will deliver new content to your inbox every Friday. There's a way to donate to the ministry there as well if you'd like to come alongside Life Assurance Ministries with your financial support. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen as this helps expand our reach. All right, Colleen, so I have a question for you. Okay. What did you think about Paul and his gospel as a Seventh-day Adventist? Interesting question, because I don't remember thinking much about it. Oh. I did not learn, as you actually learned, that uh, Paul was to be doubted. I did learn that he was hard to understand. Mm. So I think the effect of that was similar to being told I needed to maybe perhaps doubt him. And I've since seen that in Adventism, that there's actual doubt of Paul. But I think the effect on me was a little more subtle, because I did believe that all of his epistles were part of Scripture, which was part of that thing Ellen White said was the greater, you know, the greater light. Mm. So I believed that, but I also believed that um, he was hard to understand, and I was filled with cognitive dissonance. I think I mostly thought of Paul as kind of separate from the Twelve. Mm-hmm. I knew he was considered an apostle, but I saw him as a sort of like a genetic sport standing out here, and the twelve were over here, and Paul went to the Gentiles, and these guys didn't, and I don't remember running into the idea that Paul was teaching something different, but I didn't really understand what I thought the New Testament was teaching. I thought the New Testament as a whole taught what I was told it did, which was Jesus died for our sins, and now he's up in heaven going through the books. And I was confused Mm -hmm. when I read Paul, but I didn't think I was supposed to doubt him, which of course left me with terrible cognitive dissonance. What about you? Well, I went to La Sierra University. They tend to be more liberal, even among many Adventists. Mm -hmm. They view them as more liberal. There was a lot of questioning a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. It was just kind of what you did. You questioned everyone. There were a couple of female pastors that I was exposed to during that time. And it was interesting to me because I would pick up on occasional snark about right. Paul. Um, in fact, I remember one of the women was preaching at church and came out and said that she didn't like Paul as oh. a person. I don't know, it's kind of a feminist perspective. There were things that Paul said very strongly that were mildly offensive to them. Oh, yeah. That was something that just kind of hung over discussions of Paul when I would talk to other women or teachers that I was surrounded by there. But, you know, I was also taught that each of the writers in the New Testament had a different emphasis. They had a different kind of hobby horse. You know, John was fighting the Gnostics and Got it. Matthew was exposing the Judaism within Christianity, and so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. then there was Paul, and (laughs) Paul was really all about that grace. And so you kind of had to read all of them together and determine uh, as a church what the overall themes are and sort of do your best from that 
to be who God wants you to be. And so we all kind of come to different conclusions and it sort of just felt like there was no absolute truth or way to read the scriptures and know. Now, I did have that reaction. Did you? Oh, I did. I didn't think there was any absolute way I could know exactly how to look in the Bible and find what I thought the Bible taught. Yeah. That's why I really loved the whole idea that God knows your heart. (laughs) Me (laughs) too. Because he knew I was trying to make sense of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. I was so sincere. (laughs) You know, I do remember later in my Adventist experience, not too long before Richard and I actively started studying the New Testament and realizing something was going on that we didn't know what was going on in it. But I remember being in a Sabbath school class at Glendale City Church, taught by the pastor at that time. And he said, as he taught the book of Jonah, now that's not the New Testament, but I remember him standing up in class and saying, the story of Jonah is more true than if it actually happened. (laughs) That shocked me because I had believed Jonah happened. And I now know that Jesus himself referred to Jonah as a sign of Jonah for himself coming out of the grave. There was a sense in that comment, even though it shocked me at the time, that summarized the only way I could approach Scripture. I believed it was true. I wouldn't have gone as far as that pastor. But I didn't believe that every word meant what every word said. I believed that we had to figure out how to interpret it, and it was pretty much anybody's guess who had the best method to do that. And that just seems so much like what was going on in Galatia, because you have Paul who's coming with truth, absolute, Mm -hmm. knowable truth from God, right? and you have these men who are like, oh, Paul's interpreting that wrong. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, They're coming with their own interpretation and treating Paul as if he's only bringing an interpretation. That's interesting. But the fact is the scriptures are inspired by God himself. Paul was chosen by God himself. For crying out loud, Paul (laughs) had a face-to-face encounter with God. He was taken up and he was taught by God. The poor man had to deal with such arrogance. Yes. When they're trying to discredit him. But it's that whole idea of we have the better interpretation. We have the better yes. perspective here. This makes more sense than what God's saying. Even today among Christians, there is a disagreement about whether we take the words of Scripture literally mm-hmm. or whether we somewhat allegorize them. And, you know, even today, that question leads people down different roads and different conclusions. As I think about the work that we do with Life Assurance Ministries and dealing with people who've come out of a, let's say it, a cult Mm -hmm. that cleverly deceives people using the actual words of Scripture to do the deception, I've realized that there's only one way I can approach Scripture. It says it's God's Word. It says it can't fail. God says His Word can't come back to Him empty. God says in Hebrews 4.12 that it's alive and powerful, and it pierces into our innermost being, dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, exposing the intentions and thoughts of our hearts. If he says that about it, I have to believe the only way I can go on from here is to believe the words mean what the words say. Because Adventism just had its own interpretation, which is what I see a lot of movements among Christianity doing. Mm -hmm. They have their own interpretation. And in a way, you could even say, believing the words is just my own interpretation. But, you know, if I sit down and read a science textbook, 
I cannot sit there and say, am I going to believe the words or am I going to interpret them? Because mm-hmm. I might not come up with what science has already demonstrated and approved. But if I say the words mean something, the author had an intention, the grammar explains the intention, the verb tenses mean the verb tenses, that makes the Bible hang together for me. And that actually is the issue that underlay the whole issue we talked about with Jordan Quinley when he talked about moving from a covenant theology framework into a new covenant framework and realizing that the words actually say something. And if you believe those words, you have to come up with the conclusion that Jesus fulfilled the law. And here we are with Galatians where that's a a central point. And the the theme seems to be from your experience in Adventism and mine, and what we read here in Galatians is the best way to bring in another gospel is to destabilize the confidence of believers in God's Word. I love that word, destabilize. That's what it does. When you say that words can be interpreted this way, that's what it does. Well, since we are really standing on the meaning of the words as the words were said, would you read those words for us from this passage, Nikki? Galatians 1, 11 to 24. Okay, and I'm again reading from the NASB. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles— I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying." Hmm. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. This is an amazing passage, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. When you think about it. Let's go back up to 11 where Paul makes this really big statement, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. What do you see in that verse? Why did Paul own the gospel like that? Why did he say the gospel which was preached by me? (laughs) It reminds me of the passages of scripture that talk about the uniqueness of Paul's gospel. He was given the task of teaching the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and -hmm. members of the same body. And also Christ in you, the hope of glory, that was new. And that came from Paul. And so he had this divine task from God for him to go to the Gentiles with this message and to teach the Jews. Right. And we know that because in Ephesians 3, 8 to 10, he said this, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was the first task. Second, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it was his divinely appointed task to make plain to everyone, that's Jews and Gentiles, how the new covenant worked. The mystery that was hidden for ages in God. That was the mystery of Jesus coming and fulfilling the law and inaugurating a new covenant in his blood. That was the mystery. And God gave Paul the task of explaining how that worked. I mean, Jesus talked about it. He prayed in his prayer in the upper room that God would make his disciples one as he and the Father were one, that they would be in him as he is in the Father. All of that was talking about the reality of the new covenant, but he didn't explain all the details of how this worked because he hadn't yet died and risen from the dead. And Paul was the one given that task. Mm -hmm. Another part of verse 11 that struck me was his saying, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. And the way he owned it, the way he referred to it as the gospel which is preached by me. I mean, he didn't preach a different gospel from the gospel the other apostles preached, but he had a different revelation of it, and he never backed away from that ownership of what God had told him. And I thought it was really interesting that when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, that's right before that declaration of what the gospel is. He died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. Before he says that... Paul says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. He's really unequivocal that the gospel he preached is the gospel from God. Mm -hmm. And Romans 2, 15 and 16, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, referring to the Gentiles, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. His gospel includes that God is going to judge men one day at the end of all things. If we are in Christ, we're not going to be condemned in that judgment. But if we are in Christ, the works of our flesh will be judged for rewards. The works of the wicked will be judged for punishment. And that's part of Paul's gospel, too. He owned the entire mystery of the gospel, which is all hinged on Jesus' finished work of death, burial, and resurrection. How we relate to that is what determines where we'll stand in the judgment at the end of time. Will we be rewarded for our works as we are saved, or will we be condemned in our punishment? Will our sin be on us or on Christ? So, Paul's gospel, though unique in the sense that he had a revelation from Christ, he had information to share, it was not incompatible no. with the other gospels, as I was kind of taught. I mean, not That's overtly, interesting. Mm-hmm. but kind of taught that. And in fact, I was even told, I think I shared last week, that Paul was placed in the church like the snake was placed in the garden by somebody who was telling me their whole point was, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you're not, you can't be saved. And Paul came to make us believe that we didn't have to be perfect. 
Nikki, that still horrifies me. Yeah, it's it's really sad. It's really sad to me that that there are people who not only believe that, but who are publicly teaching that. That's that's horrifying. That's blasphemous. Yeah, but you know what? It's it's becoming more and more clear to me as I read the Bible why it's Paul that's always attacked and undermined by legalistic groups, no that's matter right. where they come from. I agree. I see the same thing. And you know, it reminds me that years ago in our FAF Friday night group, we had an Adventist man who sometimes came for the discussion. He considered himself quite progressive, and he would speak up in FAF. And I remember being surprised by the clear articulation for, that I had not actually heard clearly articulated before. He would talk in our group about the Pauline gospel versus the Johannine gospel. And he would try to explain how the Johannine gospel was different from Paul's. And I remember being so upset with him because I knew it was false and having to sort of clean up after he would make these declarations in our group, uh, and to show how John isn't saying something different from Paul. No, he's definitely not. Definitely not. But if you don't know your Bible and you hear people talk like that, it creates anxiety. Like, how am I ever going to get this right if the writers didn't even figure it out? But the Bible really does clarify it. And Nikki, it doesn't really help clarify it unless you believe it means what it says. Right. And read it. And read it. I was on my favorite website when we do these, Precept Austin. One commentator named Norman Harrison said, The reason men of our day repudiate Paul's theology and turn with preponderant emphasis to the teachings of Jesus is crystal clear. Think red letter people. Right. By ridding themselves of a supernatural interpretation of those teachings. So this is Paul, right? Right. He was divinely given the interpretation he was. of the new covenant, mm-hmm. they leave themselves free to give their own interpretation. They're free to speculate as to what those teachings of Jesus should mean for the modern mind. Mm-hmm. And he goes on and says, we need to guard ourselves against allowing human thought to crowd out the gospel. And And I would just want to tuck in here. So many people will write and say, how do I choose a church? Yes. And I want to say, make sure that you are sitting under the teaching of somebody who is walking through the Bible, line by line, saying what the Bible says. Yes. Not putting human writers, interpreters. I mean, there's a place for human Christian teachers. There is. Of course. But when that becomes the dominant thing and it's all about speculation, or moralizing. You need, yes. you need to go somewhere else. I agree with that. You know, it reminds me of somebody that I met recently who has come out of a similar but not identical cult <laughs> to ours, who said, he just lives by the words of Jesus. I did not want to engage, nor did I have the time to engage in a whole discussion on that. But that is, like that quote you just read, False. Jesus's words are absolute truth, and Jesus gave it to the apostles to teach that truth. Mm -hmm. And he called Paul specifically, last of all, as one abnormally born, and took him, 2 Corinthians 12, to the third heaven and showed him things he wasn't even permitted to tell, but he showed him the reality of the new covenant and what reality looks like when we're in Christ. 
It's not even a true statement because if you're only going to listen to Jesus, then you're going to listen to him when he says that we are to learn from these apostles. He told them, go into the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Absolutely. And in his prayer in the garden, he prayed for the people who would come to faith through the apostles. Yes. So it's it's as if I were to leave my kids with a babysitter Mm -hmm. and I were to tell them, you need to listen to this babysitter. And then I leave. And then the babysitter tells them to do something and they say, you're not my mom. I don't have to listen to you. Uh-huh. Well, your mom said to listen to her. Right. And Christ sent these men into the world to do a work on his behalf. Yes, he did. And that's why he gave the Holy Spirit to indwell believers so that we would always have His Spirit in us, reminding us of His Word, reminding us of His Word, not new information, which is another thing that man said to me, that he just goes by the words of Jesus. I have the Holy Spirit, and He directly communicates with me and tells me how to live. You know what? The Holy Spirit is not going to give us new information that Jesus did not say would come. Jesus said the apostles would come. Jesus is our final word. The apostles are teaching us Jesus's word. And the Bible makes it clear how that works. And Jesus set the stage by, as you said, praying that God would bless them. And he said, I'm not only praying for these, I'm praying for those who will believe through their words. Yeah. And Jesus himself said that if you're my disciples, you will abide in my word. So we can't interpret that away. And I can understand Paul's passion and the way he repeatedly emphasized his divine calling, his special mission to give the gospel, to explain the new covenant. He was opposed on all sides by Jews and Gentiles throughout his ministry. And he knew. He was committed, a servant, a slave to Christ, bringing the words of Christ to the world. So in the next verse, in verse 13, Paul writes, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And J. Vernon McGee wrote in in a commentary on this passage, he said, Paul now calls the religion in which he was brought up the Jews' religion. Paul was saved not in Judaism, not by Judaism, but from Judaism. I love that. Yeah, that was really an interesting point to sit and and think about. Paul begins to speak about his former way of life as being disconnected from the church, which to me is a beautiful picture of the old covenant and the new covenant. They are not blended. They are not married. One is a former way of life. And one is a new way of life. Now, I know he's speaking about his persecuting the church, but he's going to go on and say, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He knew Judaism. And it was interesting to me also in, in the study notes in my NASB study Bible, it made the point that the word Judaism is not the same thing as Old Testament Israelite law. It said Judaism was the religion of the Jews, which was developed after their return from their Babylonian exile, when they came and rebuilt the temple and reestablished their religion after being without a temple and without the ability to sacrifice. 
it's sort of interesting to me that as a side note, but it's significant in the development of what became known as Judaism, Israel was exiled because of its apostasy and its idolatry, its actual literal worshiping of idols, offering children to Chemosh. When they came back, they never again went into idol worship. What is so interesting about post-exilic Judaism is that they made an idol of the law. Yeah. And they built a religion that involved synagogues that did not exist in the law. That was not part of ancient Israel. Synagogue worship on the Sabbath where they would debate the law. That was the period of Jewish history when the rabbis developed the Midrash and all of their commentaries and the Talmuds with all the rabbinic commentaries and fences about the law to make sure everybody kept it properly. That's when all of those accretions happened in Judaism to the Old Testament law. And that was what became known as Judaism, and actually kind of still is today. And that's what Paul uses as his word when he said he was advancing in Judaism. It didn't exclude the law, but it included all the rabbinic traditions that were added to the law, including synagogue worship and how you rose in power and became a rabbi. It was the extra credit. It was the extra credit, yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because I was speaking with somebody who's just starting to come out of Adventism and she was reading Galatians and she said, she contacted me into the second chapter and she said, there's nothing about Sabbath yet because she was trying to figure out if Sabbath was salvific. My commentary said that the main emphases of Judaism are circumcision and Sabbath keeping. You have these Judaizers who are coming to the church in Galatia and they're telling them to be circumcised. Yes. And they have this Judaism in their head, which emphasizes circumcision and Sabbath keeping. So even the Mosaic law says you can't keep the Sabbath unless you're a circumcised Jew. Right. But these are the extra credit guys. Sabbath keeping is absolutely in their mind Mm -hmm. when they're thinking about binding the church to their way of life. And of course, the Ten Commandments is a given in that. Yeah. Judaism isn't Judaism without the Ten Commandments, but we have these public demonstrations that we're honoring the law. And I want to say, how can Adventists ever read Galatians and not see themselves in this book? The only way I know that they can do it is to redefine the law as they have done, as I understood it redefined. I mean, they literally said, oh, no, just circumcision. They never discussed the fact that circumcision was how one became a Jew. Mm -mm. Well, and we saw in our walk through the 28 fundamental beliefs that they're teaching you fundamental belief number 18 before you ever leave fundamental belief number one. You just don't know what's happening. That's right. And what is 18? Oh, 18 is about Ellen White being their prophetess. That's right. The spirit of prophecy. You set the stage for people to catch what you want them to catch and miss what you want them to miss. So again, when you come to Galatians with a great controversy worldview in your head, all of those deceptive divisions where you omiss this and catch this and all of that's already set up for you so that when you read this letter, you don't see yourself in it and you're interpreting it through a grid that... You might leave confused, but you're supposed to be because it's Paul. Yes, that is so true, Nikki. In fact, that's why the words have to mean what the words say. Like you said earlier, the more I study scripture, the more I read Paul, the more I read the New Testament in general, 
and the old, the more I see that Adventism, literally, like Satan with Jesus in the wilderness, Adventism uses God's Word, taken out of context with redefined, subtly redefined meanings, to deceive people into a false religion. They literally use the Bible to deceive people into Adventism. It's horrifying to me. It's stealing, it's illegitimate, it's lying, it's it's just wrong. And it's a classic method of false teachers. You know, I've heard the saying, it's a sin to bore people with the Bible. And I, and I want to say it is a sin to confuse people with the Bible. I agree. The Bible isn't confusing. It isn't. And if you see what Jesus has done and who He is and trust Him— He gives us His Spirit. His Spirit really does make the Bible come alive. And I think that one of the commitments every Christian has to make through the rest of that person's life, it's something that I have to still pray about, is that the Lord will guard me from deception and plant me deeply in His Word and help me to know what is actually true. Because the Bible doesn't reach an end. It's not like you read the passage and you hit the foundation, and that's it. You can't go deeper. There's truth in the Bible, and the more I read Scripture, the more I see it connecting together with itself. Yeah. It holds together. Yeah. Yeah, you never get bored of Scripture. No. When you learn to read it and to love it. And you know, one of the things that I have often said happened to me when I was born again is God gave me a degree of logic that I didn't have before. I'm able to to understand that you start at the beginning of the letter right. and you read to the end if you want to understand it. As an Adventist, I would randomly flip it open and, oh, it's too confusing for me. Well, that's like starting a movie in the middle of a movie. You're going right. to ask everyone in the room what happened 30 times before you have a sense <laughs> of what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. You have to read it like you read any other book. And it makes sense then. Yeah. Well, when we come to verse 15, Paul says another thing that I think is so amazing. He says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, and then moving into 16, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nikki, what are your thoughts when you read him saying, God who set him apart from his mother's womb? I automatically think of Psalm 139. Yes. I love that Psalm. So in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Isn't that amazing. I love this chapter. (laughs) You know, it's interesting to me too, that some of the prophets had similar things to say. Isaiah 49, 1 and 2 has Isaiah saying, and actually he is speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And Jeremiah 1.5 
before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Paul also says in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This idea of God seeing and knowing and calling people from before their birth, he's actually planning for them in their development. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. But I have to say, as an Adventist, I thought that was just for the special ones. Yeah. You know, that that was just David or the Apostle Paul or Jesus. It wasn't necessarily how he handled everything because you can't have God choosing you before he sees if you're going to make it through that investigative (laughs) judgment. But we see in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul applies this sovereignty to the church. Yes. He says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. All of us. All of us. And He's speaking to believers here. Mm-hmm. And you know, somebody said to me recently when, when I was talking about this very thing, so does that mean that some people can't be saved? Some people just can't be saved. And I want to say... No, it doesn't mean that. What I understand is that God chose and called everyone who is saved from the foundation of the world. That's what Paul is saying. I also know that the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to Him through His Son. How these things fit together in eternity, I can't explain. I really do not believe they contradict each other from outside of time, from the perspective of God, but I can't tell you how. I just know that the Bible says both of these things are true, and I have to know both are true. So, the application of that for me is this. Instead of worrying about how you formulate that, what kind of a mathematical system you have to use to figure out how to make sense of it, know that everything the Bible says is true, and know that when you read, believe in me. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent. Believe the ones who believe in me will pass from death to life. The ones who have not believed are condemned already. When you read those words, there's only one appropriate response. Believe. (laughs) And when you see those calls to believe, you can believe. There's nobody who can read those and say, oh, it's not for me. It's for everyone. All of the work that we often go to as humans to formulate scripture and to formulate truth, I think it ultimately ends up just destabilizing believers. Like we said earlier, I remember after being saved, going through a really hard time um, interpersonally and wondering, maybe I'm not really born again. Maybe Mm -hmm. I wasn't called to be saved. Maybe I'm supposed to think I'm saved so that I can get my kids saved by giving them the gospel. But God, I mean, it was a lot of Mm -hmm. unhealthy mental gymnastics I was doing in my head. But the truth of the matter is, and and I remember a friend saying this to me once, she said, Nikki, do you believe the gospel? Yes. Then you're saved. Yes. Do you believe today? Yes. Then you're saved. Are you going to believe tomorrow? (laughs) Yes. Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life, Lord. You know when you're saved. You do. Absolutely. We don't have to figure out the formula. No. But we do have to believe the words. That is the important thing. We have to believe the words and give up trying 
to harmonize it in the sense of making making it make sense from a mathematical perspective to us. Mm-hmm. We can hold these ideas in tension, knowing both are true, and in Christ, it all makes sense. And God never tells us another person's story, if you want to say it that way, just like He doesn't tell us Satan's story. He tells us who we are. He reveals us through His Word, as it says in Hebrews, the Word of God cuts through our soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and reveals the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He convicts us of who we are, of our need for Him, and shows us that He is more than enough to save us. That's what He tells us. That's what we believe. And all His words are true. And you know, He gives us specific work to do. He gives us particular commands to follow. I mean, there are certainly the general commands for the church, but when Paul says that he was set apart from his mother's womb to do this work, he's speaking of specific work God gave for him to do. And Ephesians 2 says that we were created in Christ Jesus. He created works in advance for us to walk in. So we all have work to do for the Lord. It's not just, here's 10 commandments, follow them and you're in. No, He saves us and then He brings us to the work He created for us to do. We can know that. So, Nikki, the rest of this chapter is basically Paul just kind of giving a little historical detail of what happened after his experience with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, about where he went, when he went, and where he went after that. (laughs) Would you just mind reading these last verses, maybe starting with verse 16, reading to 24, just so we get this picture in our mind of the progress of the early days of Paul's believing in the Lord before he launched into his actual ministry and his missionary journeys. Okay, so I'll back up to 15 because we're in the middle of a sentence there. (laughs) But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing... He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. That's really quite an amazing thing. And you know what it makes me think? Hmm. First of all, let's just recap. Once he became a born-again believer, what did he do? Now, yes, we know from Acts that he was preaching. He did start preaching Christ immediately after. It would be hard not to. But he was met with disbelief, persecution, and he was finally sent away. But what was that about? He makes it very clear that once he was born again, he didn't just launch into his ministry and start traveling on his missionary journeys. We know from Acts that he did preach. He tells us here that he didn't just launch into his ministry. What did he do? He went away. He went away to Arabia and then returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, he went to go meet Cephas. Three years before he went to the head of the church in Jerusalem, and he met Cephas and one other person. And James, the brother of Jesus. And he stayed with with Peter for 
15 days. Wouldn't that have been an interesting conversation? That would have been wonderful to be a part of. Well, you know what it makes me think of? There's a kind of a two-part thing this makes me think of. First, in my experience dealing with people leaving Adventism and coming to know the Lord, there's an immediate understanding of who Jesus is, and there's an overwhelming desire to tell people about Him. Yeah, That's something God gives us to do. Mm-hmm. But... I've also seen a phenomenon, especially among people who have had kind of maybe a voice in Adventism, like pastors or teachers that were significant, who want to immediately go out and launch a new teaching ministry or a new church. And sometimes that may work. I'm not saying it's wrong if somebody does that, but I am saying this. Frequently, people who leave a system of religion like we had that was not the gospel and immediately want to go and preach the gospel, they actually need to sit back and let themselves be taught for a while. Paul had to be taught for a while. You know, the other apostles were with Jesus, and he said that when he left, he'd send the Holy Spirit, who would lead them into all truth, who would remind them of all he had said. Paul hadn't had that experience with Jesus. He now has it after his born-again experience, one-on-one with Jesus, as he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, And he went away. And we're not detailed with these things, but he grew in the Lord. Mm -hmm. He grew in his understanding of what the new covenant was compared to the old and how Jesus had fulfilled it. And he says that God gave him that special job of explaining the new covenant. So I just want to say to all of us, as we leave, we have to know there's a period of time when we're unpacking our worldview. And while we are called to speak for Christ whenever He gives us opportunity, I just want to say, I think we all have to be patient and ask God to show us the next right thing, to show us what He wants us to do, and to allow ourselves to be taught, Mm -hmm. and to lead us to good teachers and good sources, because it is not the Adventist way to do that. And that's something we have to overcome. We have to learn to submit ourselves to good teaching. Yeah, you know, we often talk about, or I hear people talk about Adventism being the gospel plus. I don't believe that Adventism is the gospel plus because Mm-mm. I don't believe that it has the gospel. I agree. I know it doesn't. And so it's not like you can just cut off the plus right. and then walk confidently into a new way of life. I had to see myself as a new convert. And scripture's clear uh-huh. that new converts shouldn't be put in positions of of at least eldering or leading and teaching. Right. I knew there was a lot I had to learn. It wasn't just about unlearning. It was that's also right. about learning. And that's a hard thing to do when you have a degree from a seminary or you've spent your whole life reading the Bible. It's a hard thing to confess that you were so deceived. It's interesting as I see Paul talking about not going to the apostles before him, and we'll see next week, he he refers to some of these people as people who were somebody. Uh-huh. <laughs> You see that he doesn't get his sense of authority or significance or importance from what they have commissioned him to do or what they think of him. He stood face to face with God. He was taught by God. Right. You don't have that experience and then go and ask your neighbor what they think. I mean, he was new. He was he was a new creation in Christ, right. and he had a very important job and a revelation from God. While some people in my past would say he was very arrogant, I would say he was a bond slave to the truth of right. his situation. 
He knew who had called him, and he submitted to being taught by the one who had called him. And he couldn't think any other way. Right. If he had submitted, as he put it here, to flesh and blood, Mm -hmm. there is always an implication in flesh and blood of fallibility and error. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He did not submit himself to flesh and blood. He submitted himself to the Lord Jesus who called him and made him alive. That's really what we all have to do. And we submit ourselves to his word. And we then ask him to lead us to people who can help us understand, who will be good teachers, who will be faithful to the word themselves. But we submit ourselves to God. Yeah, and uniquely for Paul, he wasn't to submit himself to flesh and blood because he was called to lead flesh he and blood. He was an apostle. That's mm-hmm. right. He was called to lead flesh and blood. Right. So, as he ends this chapter, it's interesting and kind of tender to me to think of what he's describing. He's saying he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. He refers back to where he had come from in Judea. And he said, but I was still unknown by sight. Mm -hmm. to the churches of Judea, but they heard I was preaching, and the the one who had persecuted them was now preaching Christ, and they were rejoicing and glorifying God. That must have been an amazing thing to see. And you know, for a man like Paul who never got over that he had been the worst of sinners, that he had persecuted the church of God, he even says that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about being abnormally born, called as one abnormally born. It must have been an overwhelming gift from God for him to hear that these believers whom he had been persecuting believed that he was born again and were rejoicing to see him preaching Christ (laughs) and that he'd become one of them. Only God could do that in a life. Only God could do that in those Christians, and only God could arrange for a person like Paul to be forgiven by trusting in Jesus and to be affirmed by the rest of the body without knowing him personally, but Mm -hmm. believing that God was that powerful. And as private as his conversion was, it was also very public because of who he had been before. That's right. And the reputation that preceded him before the church really came to know him by sight. And these people in Galatia should have known all of this. These Judaizers, they weren't just discrediting a random person. This right. this was a man that they should have known was trustworthy and who was trusted by the apostles and the other churches in the areas. That's a really important point. They did know, but their own pride and arrogance appeared to get in the way. So as we finish this chapter and we think about what Paul Our apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, went through in order to become the man God had called him to be, something he never actually got over becoming. He grew in Christ to the end of his ministry and suffered unspeakably for the Lord Jesus, and yet he called it his greatest joy. For a person like that, to be the apostle to the Gentiles who explains the new covenant to us, I just want to say... If you haven't really considered what Paul has said as the actual words of God to you, think about that. 
Ask the Lord to show you the truth of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Ask the Lord to show you the truth of the way He has broken down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles by taking the law to the cross in His own body, by dying for your sins, by being buried, by rising on the third day according to the Scriptures, and trust Him. Trust Him with your sin. Trust Him with your shame. Trust Him with your doubts. And He will be more than enough. He will bring you to life and seal you with His Spirit. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can visit proclamationmagazine.com to view online articles and to sign up for emails that will deliver new content to your inbox every Friday. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen as this helps expand our reach. And join us as we look at Galatians chapter 2, where Paul details his experience going to the apostles in Jerusalem and sharing how God has blessed the Gentiles in his ministry. And we'll see you then.